where there can be a campus ministry. If there's not, that town, that city is automatically disqualified. And the reason that is so, and I hope what you understand that speaks to is the potential of your ministry, but also speaks to our faith in you guys, of what you can do and that you will do a better job with your generation in doing what God calls you to than maybe we did in ours. And CMU, when we were able to host it here, we were really excited about that because we wanted to share what we are doing with you and get you guys to come up and see that. We wanted to also for you to get some real quality lessons, and I think that's taken place. And we wanted you to have fun, too. You know, to where, yeah, you come, and this is more of a leadership, pretty intense time of learning, but you have fun. So the bonfire last night where you guys got to go out and just kind of chill and have some, some fun. And then tonight, you guys are going to the City Museum. If you're thinking, all right, if you're thinking City Museum, as far as somebody, I think, told me that they could be the tour guide. Who was it that told me that over here? Uh, somebody said, I could be the tour guide. She's never been there. Uh, did I misunderstand? <laughs> but at this, whoever volunteered to be the guide, and a couple of people, I encourage you to do that. The reason I'm not going is I've been there a lot, and if I guide, there are little crevices that I get stuck in now that I can't get out of. They're not little crevices. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they are so tiny that his brain could fit through them. But anyway. Uh, so, mo mo moving on, okay, hey, hey, we, don't have time. we don't have time for you to get in a losing battle, so let's go on, all right? Uh, but honestly, you are going to love the City Museum, and the most awesome thing about it is, is that you guys are going to be there as brothers and sisters in Christ who are committed to something more significant than just having fun, but when you're committed to that together, it makes life a lot more fun. So I really, I look forward to, you know, some of you said, I'm going to talk to you more about the City Museum because it is not a museum that you tour. It is a museum that you experience. And it's got thrilling and scary and just all kinds of fun stuff. So I hope you have a good time. But I want to leave you as we talk this evening, as we leave, we talk about really the ultimate goal because in the very beginning, we talked about reviving your personal relationship with God. And we talked about reviving your ministry, your campus ministry, and that's good. And, and reviving your, your church was a part of what was going on. But all of those were a means to an end. Those were not the goals. Those were the necessary components to reach the ultimate goal. And that is for you to revive your world, for you to make a difference in the world that you're in. To where, wherever you are, that it said after you're gone that you made a difference. And the more committed to that you will be. Now, understand, that's going to involve you being very personal about you because we're going to talk tonight about, again, it goes back to what do you have to be in order to revive? What do you have to be to shake your world? And it's my prayer that when you leave here, that you will leave with a dream of going, I want to go and I want to revive the world that I'm in. Wherever I go, things come to life. You see, in much of my life, wherever I went, death followed. All my friends I had as teenagers, I was always the bad influence. I was always the one that brought darkness into their lives. And even though God has forgiven me and I've got past a lot of that, there are remnants and reminders anytime I go back to where I'm at of the damage that I did. And for several years now, I get to be the person who gets to see the things that God does whenever you devote yourself to him and he allows you to be a life-giving force rather than a life-taking force. And remember that this life that you're giving isn't just about now. It begins now, but this is just the beginning, and it ends in forever. So I was thinking about how are we going to talk about reviving your world? 
Because that's really something you go, your world, it wasn't reviving the world, it was your world. I'm thinking, okay, your world, your world tends to change and evolve, doesn't it? I mean, you know, if, you were, if I were to talk to most of you 10 years ago, uh, you know, you guys that are seniors now in, in college, 10 years ago, you would have been sophomores in college. And so, no, that's not right. 10 years ago, you'd have been in high school or junior high. And, and it's, isn't it funny how what your world was like then and everything? You look back and go, man, whenever, you, everything revolved around. You thought you were so mature. I look at pictures of whenever I got married, and I go, man, I thought I had the world you know, by the tail. I look at pictures of Carrie and Hannah and Ashley and RJ when they got married. And at the time, they seemed completely competent, and they felt they were completely competent. But I know they look at their pictures and go, I'm oh, so silly. You know what I mean? You look at the pants that you wore back then, you go, oh, good night. You know, what was I thinking? That hairstyle's horrendous. Your world changed, and you went from being a person in junior high or high school to college. And right now, you have a world of your own, and in a few years, that's going to change. Your world is going to be different. Your world will be much about the people you work with, the husband or wife that you have, and the kids that you're around. But here's the thing, no matter what world it is that you live in, God wants you to revive that world. To where wherever you are, you are a source of life. If you're in junior high, that you're a source of life. And if you're in high school, you're a source of life. And then you get out and you get a job, you go to college, and you're a source of incredible life that spreads because of your influence through the nations. But then as you go into the adult world and you marry, you're a source of light to where your spouse and your children have life. And here's the thing, the older you get in the, the, as your world changes, with those people that you meet when you're young, you get to have friendships and you get to know, yeah, I'm going to be with them forever. But all of a sudden, God blesses you with this understanding that I've been preparing you and all this stuff you've been doing to save the people that you love the most in the world, your spouse and your kids, to where you'll get to be with them forever. And so how do we talk about saving or reviving our world? And it hit me that it doesn't matter what world you're in. The same essentials that it takes to revive the world of someone who is my age are the same essentials, the same components, the same attitudes, the same attributes that if you have, you'll possess them. So I had a lesson I was going to do out of, uh, when Jesus looked at the crowds and had compassion on them. And I thought, we'll talk about that. And then whenever his character was doing his lesson, in the back of my mind, I started thinking about earlier today going, man, I don't know if that's what I want to do. And I'm sitting upstairs going, okay, there's something running through my mind. And all of a sudden it hit me that there's one guy in Scripture that I, that I know about that no matter where his world was, revival followed him. In every situation, no matter where he is in his stage of life, you find that he's a life giver. And he's been a hero of mine for years. He's one of the guys that I've looked at whenever I first got in ministry. And he's one of the guys I look at still and I say, man, I want to be like this guy. And I don't talk about him a lot. And we don't talk about him a lot, but his name is Philip. We don't see a lot about him, but there are three major passages of Scripture. If you have your phones or your Bibles, I want you to turn to these passages, and we're going to read them in abbreviated form, because I want to try to get you guys, you guys have had a lot of knowledge, you know, I mean, you've been like drinking from a fire hydrant this weekend, right? You know what I'm saying? You, yeah, you're like on, on the Guardians of the Galaxy when they're going through that time warp, you know, your mouth is shaking, your heads, your eyes are big and everything, you know, it's like, ah, slow this thing down here. But in Acts chapter 6, we fill, see Philip on the scene for the very first time. And on the scene, when he comes on, he seems rather insignificant. But here's the thing, when you're the person that God calls you to be, there is no scene that you will show up in that you will be insignificant. You may think you are, but you're not. 
And you may be going, man, if I were a leader, I could be significant. I want you to know, you don't have to be a leader to be a significant. If you're what God wants you to be as a baby Christian, God will enable and empower you to be incredibly significant. So we know the story of, of the book of Acts, right? Acts chapter 1, Jesus kind of says, hey, he, I'm back, you know, I'm alive. He spends some time with them, talking to them about the kingdom of God and lordship of Jesus. And he goes, oh, I'm back. And they're going, cool. And he goes, and I'm going, bye. And he leaves. And so those guys are looking to heaven going, what are we doing here? The angel appears and goes, hey, guys, what are you looking at the sky? Go back. Jesus is coming back someday, but right now he has work for you to do. So they go into the city, they get together in an upper room, they have some healing time, they probably have some confronting time with each other as disciples go, probably to the same upper room that Jesus met with them in the Lord's Supper, at least many historians believe that. And then in Acts chapter 2, you see Peter, this guy who has blown it so many times, but is trying to be like God wants him to be. He's the Bible character, the New Testament character that I relate to more than any other. I'm like Peter naturally, I want to be like Philip, because Philip was a life-giving force no matter where he was. Peter, it depended on what was going on around him. But in Acts chapter 2, <coughs> through God's grace, he allows Peter to deliver this message, and a group, <coughs> excuse me, of maybe around 500 at the most believers, you've got the 12 that are fully devoted, 100 to the women with that 120, and then there's a mention of a larger group, but four, three to 500, a church of three to 500, <coughs> that's my Garden of Galaxy cough. <coughs> anyway, to 3,500 and really probably more like 6,500. People are being baptized every day, but not individual, you know, baptisms. It's been one of my goals ever since I've been in ministry to be leading a church that has daily baptism, an average uh, baptism a day for a year, 365 baptisms. That's pretty cool. They had those in just a few hours. Incredible what might be going on there. So everything is going incredibly well. The church, it goes from having this 5,000 to 6,000. The Bible says that, that it added, they were adding believers, and then it says they multiplied. So they went from simple addition to whatever they were in numbers. It means rather than going just three plus three, they went three times three. And we don't know. There are experts that believe that the Jerusalem church at one time could have been 100,000 people. So it's a huge church that God works through. But there's some problems that come up because Satan is always going to do something to de derail you and stop you if you're doing well. The very fact that you're here this weekend sets you up as a target for Satan, that he knows these are people that are wanting to do something good, and all that Satan is about is stopping people who want to do something good. So there comes up with this problem to where there are some widows in the church at Jerusalem who are not being taken care of. Now, nobody means to not take care of them. What probably happened is, when the church was born, you're experiencing the Passover, and people come in from all over the world. Some of them, when they hear about Jesus, embrace him, and it's a cool thing to think about these, these older people who are going, Jesus, because sometimes older people can be stubborn. You know what I mean? Honestly, don't we know that the, the more we get? It's rare to find somebody that's old and is passionate for God the way that sometimes young people are. So these widows that are there, they don't have, you know, they're there for the celebration. They become Christians, and when they become Christians, nobody takes them home. Nobody is going to care for them because they have abandoned the faith, the Jewish faith. They're left in Jerusalem. Now, there are some other widows that are being taken care of. They are the ones that are in the city, 
and they had always been taken care of. And so the Christians are going, hey, you know, the widow, we used to take care of when they're Jews. They're Christians now. They're not going to take care of them because they're going to disown them. We've got to make sure they take care of them. But they didn't know where the other widows were, and so they were being neglected. That word neglected has nothing to do with intent. It's just a statement that they're being missed. But Satan seizes upon it, and the growth of the church is threatened. Here's what Acts 6, beginning in verse 1, says. And we're going to skip through this again for time. In those days when the number of the disciples is increasing, and isn't that, the, isn't that what we want to say about us? Those were the days. Only we're talking about right now. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of wisdom, uh, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them. This proposal pleased the whole group. That's verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nincar, Timian, Hermes and Nicholas of Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Uh, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So we've got this problem, this division that's coming on. Nobody means for it to happen except Satan. So they say, we need some men who are going to be able to help us deal with this. Now, it doesn't look like a very significant task because what are these guys? They are waiters. We need men who will wait on tables. Not a glorious position, not a position of leadership that you and I would go, oh yes, I want to be a waiter. Nobody on their resume, nobody on their gravestone says, I finally made it to be a waiter, right? No honor in that. But they choose seven men, and one of those men is Philip. Now understand, the massive growth of the church had stopped until they chose these seven men, Philip, who is one of them. And then in verse 7, or in the next verse, it says, after they were put in position after the disciples had laid their hands on him. In verse 7, the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. They weren't just reaching the superficially religious. They were, all of a sudden, they're reaching the priest. Something's happening. The apostles are freed up to do what they need to do, Maybe the priests are looking at this kind of relationship and the way these ladies are being taken care of and the way that they love each other and the way that they're so united that even the priest goes, man, maybe he is the Messiah and those are his disciples and that extra impetus moves them to Jesus. And if you look at what's going on in the middle of it when the baptisms are happening and the splashing that's going on, some of the men who were most responsible for it are seeing a different kind of splashing, the splashing of dirty plates thrown into water bowls to be washed, the splashing of water as it spills on the floor from the widows who aren't able to hold their cups anymore, the splashing that goes on when they wipe up the mess that's there. But understand, the splashing in the baptism had a connection with the splashing around the tables. And Philip was in the very center of it. Even if he was like Waldo in the old, where's Waldo? He might be in the center of it. You don't see him, but he's in the center. Next time we see Philip is in Acts chapter 8. Since that time, a persecution arises, and the first guy that they pick to wait on tables 
Stephen becomes the first martyr who gives his life for the faith. So in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 8, the Bible says, And Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The apostles stayed, and everybody else spread. Why? Somebody go, well, why didn't the apostles go out? Because they stayed where the heat was the hottest. That's what leaders do. They stay where it's most dangerous. So they scattered, and they were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. So he goes down to a city in Samaria, not an attractive mission field choice, and he preaches the Lord or proclaims the Lord there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to him and said, this is the Holy One of God or or, or the power of God. Verse 8 then says, so there was great joy in that city. They believed Philip, verse 12 says, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, and even the biggest cult leader is baptized. Now again, you talk about reviving your world. In that day, we can see all over the world with the internet, with our ability to have the... Their world was more limited, but everywhere where Philip, when he's around the tables and things are slowing to a halt, and all of a sudden, he gets involved, and life explodes, and revival happens. Then he goes down to Samaria and to this God-forsaken town with this God-forsaken, you know, Samaritan who has this sideshow, much like the, the carnival, uh, you know, the person would do. And all of a sudden, life breaks out where there was death. And you look around, you go, what's going on? And you have this guy that's not an apostle, that all he was a few days ago was somebody that was waiting on tables. What you wouldn't know is that he's waiting on tables brought life, and now as he serves the word of God, it brings life. The next time we see him is at the end of Acts chapter 8. He's got this great revival going on, and the Bible says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Acts 8, 26, Go south of the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. The man had gone to Jerusalem to worship on his way home, was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told him, told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. We know the answer to the eunuch. No, I don't. How could I understand unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip up with him. And he invited him before very long. It says that it presented the gospel to him. They're driving along. He said, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? He is baptized. Philip is snatched away, and the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. In the middle of the desert, life is revived. And Philip's at the center of it again. What Philip might not have known because of the limitations of being in his world, is that as he went home, as he was snatched away and the Ethiopian eunuch went home, he went home and evangelized Ethiopia to where Ethiopia from that day, from early history, Christian history on, has been one of the most Christianized nations of all of that region. You see, it would go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then way out here, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the way out here in Ethiopia, you would have this outpost of Christianity. What happened? How does that happen? It happens because a guy named Philip 
Waits tables representing God. Brings a revival to a city representing God. And goes to an individual representing God. Wherever he is in his world, whatever that world and whatever stage of life he is, he brings life and then he disappears from the scene. And the final words that we have of Philip are in Acts, referring to him, Acts 21, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, leaving as he's moving along the missionary journeys, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist, the evangelist. One of the seven, he had four daughters who all prophesied. There are a lot of evangelists who don't do a good job with their family. But wherever it is, whether it's in Acts 2 and waiting of tables, whether it's in the evangelization of Samaria, or the teaching of the eunuch, or in his own home, wherever he is, he is a life-giving reviver. He revives his world. God uses him. So when I look at this guy, I love that consistency. I want to be a part of the Acts 2 daily baptisms. I want to be that guy, though, that also, if I have to get my hands dirty and do whatever it is I want to do, if it means God wants me someplace else, I want to be where God wants me to be. And maybe most importantly than anything else in my life is that my kids and my grandkids are saved, but not only saved, but they're spokespeople for God. So when I look at Philip, this life bringer, I get to ask myself the question, what was it about him? What enabled him to be so incredibly effective at bringing life in areas that sometimes are overwhelmed with death? And I want to leave you tonight with a challenge to embrace what it will take for you to be. And these are not things that you do. These are things that you have to be. You have to, they have to engulf you and overcome you where you're not just going through a series of motions. That you can't just connect the dots and go two and two is four, two and two plus two plus two equals faithful kids. It doesn't work that way. If I do the right things and all of a sudden I'll have the blessing of God in my ministry, it doesn't work like that. God works on our heart, on our characters we talked about in class the other day. So what's it take? Let me give you four things that you've got to be. It takes number one, if, if you are going to be a life giver, giving revival, like Philip, write down, I must be spiritual. I must be spiritual. Now that has a billion definitions within our current cultural context. You will hear people say, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Or you might have somebody say, oh, I'm a spiritualist. And it means that they are pursuing something that's more like witchcraft than what Christianity is. In the scriptures in the New Testament, Someone who is spiritual is someone who is filled with the Spirit of God. You are a spiritual being. And in Acts chapter 2, the Bible promises that every believer becomes a spiritual being. It's why you will be able to live with God forever. But being full of the Spirit means more than just going, I have God's, you know, it, it, these charismatic gifts in my life. I talked with a guy one time, and he said, are you full gospel? And I said, Yes, we're full gospel. And then he began to say, so you believe that you can speak in tongues and you can heal? I said, no, I, I don't believe that. But we're completely full gospel. We're not full gospel plus, but we're full gospel. I said, in Scripture, when you talk about being led by the Spirit, 
The clarity of that is not in your ability to speak in tongues, which was this particular, if you know about the UPCs, they believe that baptism is essential for salvation in the name of Jesus only, and is evidenced by speaking in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. But when Paul wrote to the church, he said this in Romans chapter 8 about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Romans 8, 5, and this is verse 8, 5 and 8, this is in the New Living Translation. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. So someone who is spiritual is devoted to thinking about and being obedient to the things that God puts in his word and in their minds and in their hearts. So when you see Philip, he's, a, he's not a personal being. When he is asked, will you wait table, he's available. Why? Because he's always wanted to wait tables. No. Because he's spiritual. It's what God needs. Whenever the persecution arises and they need someone to go out, he speaks because he begins a person who shares the word because He's always wanted to be a preacher, and he's been trained in it. No, he's been trained in waiting tables. Why does he become the spokesman for God? Because he is spirit-led. He's a spiritual being. He has this incredible revival whenever everything's going. He is the hot commodity in the city. And when God says to him, Philip, we want you to go down to this desert road where nobody is, he doesn't go because he's a loner who likes living in the middle of nowhere. He goes because it's what the Spirit of the Lord calls him to do. And when you see him working with his family, I'm sure that he loves being a dad, but it is obvious that he's the kind of dad who teaches people about his children what it means to be spiritual because his daughters are spokespeople, not for their dad, not for their culture, but for his God. And so you're going to have to understand that you're going to have to start thinking about it. If you're going to rock your world, you're going to start thinking about the things of the Spirit. And the weird thing is it doesn't mean that it moves everything out of your world, but it means that it reframes everything in your world. When you go to school, you still go to school, but you're a spiritual being in the school, not a selfish being in the school. You can still love to play basketball. You can't be the stinking jerk that you normally are, though. Right? Win at all costs, and the cost is our example in a soul that could be one. You still want to have a relationship with a guy or a girl, but you can't have a relationship with someone who's not a child of God. Because the Spirit calls you to bond together with someone who's a believer. It's going to take you being spiritual. So spending your time thinking about and conforming to the things of the Spirit will dominate you. So rate yourself. How do you do? One to ten. I spend most of my time dominated by thoughts and adherence to the world. Or I spend most of my time thinking about and adhering to the word. One is the world. Ten is the word. How do you do? What do you spend your time? How's it going? Are you a spiritual being? Not do you go to church. Not do you attend. Not can you flap you know, your, your mouth about a few scriptures. But are you a person who says... I'm about following the things of the Spirit. God, I'm your servant. Second commodity that we see. Number one, he's spiritual. He is full of the Spirit. It was the, we see that in the selection. Choose you these men, these the seven men. Make sure they're full of the Spirit. The second thing is they're full of 
the Spirit, and what else do they have to be full of? They have to be full of wisdom. Right? It's not enough for you simply to be a person who is spiritual in the sense of, I'm thinking about God, and I'm, but there has to be a wisdom that's there. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the Bible says that wisdom comes through three different areas, uh, motives of le- motifs of learning, three different conduits that you have. The first is that you get wisdom through fearing the, fearing the Lord and studying his word. You learn to fear the Lord through his word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible says the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So you get it through the word of God and what he communicates through the word. The Bible also says that he get it through the people of God. The companions of fools, those who, 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 who walk with the wise will become wise. The companion of fools will come to ruin. If you want to be wise, you hang out with wise people. If you want to be a fool, hang out with foolish people. The third way you gain wisdom is through life experience. And a wise person uses that one last. He doesn't rely on his experiences as much as he does the word of God and the people of God who are going to teach him. You see, you can experience life and gain wisdom, but so many times what has happened is by the time you're wise, you've ruined your opportunity to help people at the moment. We have a lot of people that are here that have been divorced in our church. Lots of them. And a lot of them have have been through very difficult things and and they were so foolish and they've wised up now. But because it took a painful experience for them to wise up, they are now wise, but there are also consequences. That's why you guys can do stupid things and you can learn to be wise doing stupid things, but there will always be a price that you and others will pay. You don't have to, 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 to learn something the hard way. You know, there's... Somebody said this one time, a a, a famous person said this one time, I guess I have to do things the hard way. Anybody know who said that? Write this down, okay. Here's who said it. Someone's stupid. (laughs) And if the shoe fits and that's you, welcome to the club, all right? Philip was a person who you watch who has a compliance both to the Spirit of God and to the direction of the people that God places in his life. It is the Holy Spirit that calls him to go to the desert road. It is a bunch of fellow church members that say, we think you ought to be a waiter on tables. And he is wise enough to listen to those who are representing God as he listens to the Word of God. So how you do it being wise, 1 to 10? I listen to the Word of God and the people that God places in my life, that's a 10, or I listen to me, and I'll learn this on my own. That's a one. You're a fool. You have to be spiritual. You have to be wise. Number three, you have to be humble. The Bible says that God sets him against himself against the proud, but he shows favor to the humble, Proverbs 3, 34. Humility is an incredible act of engaging God's. The Bible says that if you humble yourself before the hand of God, he will lift you up. He says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, when you choose whether to have to be prideful or humble, you choose more than just an attribute. You choose whether you make God your ally or your enemy. Because he fights against those who are proud, 
but he fights for those. He gives grace. That idea of grace is that word, it has to do with the spirit, the, the gifts of the spirit, the power of the spirit, the enabling of the spirit. So the humble person will do more than he thinks he can do. The proud person will never do as much as he thinks he can. And Philip constantly models humility. There are all kinds of needs at the Jerusalem church. you got 6,000 new Christians. Surely there is something more important to do than waiting on tables. Surely there's something that I could do more than just sticking this food on this table and just being, being the Meals on Wheels coordinator. But he does it. When he goes and leaves Jerusalem, surely there's a better place than Samaria. No self-respecting, prideful Jew would go to Samaria, but a humble servant of God would. And then he's got this incredible revival going on. Everything's happening, and they're going, you're the man, and Philip's going, no, I'm not. God is. And then God says, hey, Philip, I want you to leave this incredibly successful revival and go isolate yourself where no one will ever praise you or know your name. And we don't even have a record of a hiccup in his giddy-up. He just goes because he's humble. And then you see in his teaching of his children through the years what I've noticed is that the humble servant of God has the ability to teach his children. But when pride becomes a factor, pride destroys the ability of the parent to teach their children. You see humility all through the life of Philip. So when you go home, you've got to be spiritual, you've got to be wise, you've got to be humble. And by the way, that word when he says, we need people in Acts 6 to wait on table, it's the exact same Greek word that Jesus used when he said, whoever wants to be great must be a servant. Serve. And in the context of you're being great, remember, it's in the context of being humble and not trying to promote yourself. You can go home, you can be a life-giving. I don't care where you are, you can be a life-giving force. Whatever class, whatever school you're in. Whether you're a school for brilliant people or for people that maybe aren't so brilliant. We used to have Central Missouri State University. Anybody ever heard of Central State? I guess that's... Uh, they've changed it now, has it? It's Missouri State. And I think the reason, C, Central Missouri State, C-M-S, I, yeah, it, it used, they'd say, I asked one of my friends, he went there, and he goes, yo, I said, where are you going? He gave me the, 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 the little uh, acronym or little initials. I said, what's that stand for? He said, it, it stands for Call Me Stupid State. What? Yeah, Call Me Stupid State University. He goes, you, he goes I'm, I did horrible in school, and I got in here. It doesn't matter. If you're in Springfield, wonderful, okay. It doesn't matter whether you're in Atlanta. Whether you're in a school with a lot of girls or no girls, right? Hey. You can be a life-giving force if you'll be spiritual, if you'll be wise, if you'll be humble. And then finally, and again, just ask yourself, though, so as we talk about being humble, rank yourself in humility. Are you someone who is humbly accepting the task that God sets before you or someone who proudly tries to promote yourself? Go one to ten. In all these things, one to ten, humble or pride, really it's one to ten, life-giving or life-taking. Life-taking is one, life-giving is ten. And then finally, 
the note that I think, the thing that I see in Philip that, that I have to embrace if I want to be this life-giving force, this reviver, it means that I have to be available. Philip never whines about anything. We need someone, and his hand went up. Whether it was an attractive task or just a menial task, I'll do it. Why? Because this is not about me. This is about God. There's a passage of Scripture in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. This is a living Bible where it says this, I looked in vain for anyone who would build again the wall of righteousness that guards the land, who could stand in the gap and defend you from my attacks. I looked, but I found no one available. You see, there are huge gaps in our ministries. You know, you've got some people that are standing and fighting in that particular area. In the small group, you've got leaders, and you guys are doing a great job. But there were huge gaps where Satan is able to attack. And we need people that will step in because for every attack, whenever Satan comes through, somebody gets lost. It's because you're prideful, and it's beneath you to do the job that's there. Sometimes it's because you're not spiritual, you're worldly, and you've got so much junk going on that won't ever matter, but right now it matters in your world. And your world will be a place of death and decay, and your life will be one of regret, but you've got to make yourself available. In Isaiah 6, 8, Isaiah said, I heard the Lord asking, whom shall I send as a messenger to my people? Who will go? And I said, here am I, send me. Remember Moses wasn't just completely like that initially? You see, you can, be, you can be like Isaiah and say, here am I, send me. But some of you are more like Moses. Remember him? He said, here am I, send Aaron. Get somebody else. You know, I, I don't feel qualified. It's never about a qualification. It's about your willingness to. And here's the thing. God is not nearly as worried about your abilities or your inability as he is your availability. And people who make themselves available to him find themselves giving life far beyond what they think they would be capable for. You see, God's not looking for a highly talented person who can do everything because he knows that that person doesn't exist. What he's looking for is the person who will do anything for him. Because that's the kind of person who can give life. I'm excited to see what God's going to do in our ministries. The world is difficult, and it is dying around us right now. But I'm telling you, God has called you out of that. And if you will stay with him, you will be able to experience some of what I've got to experience. You guys, you know what a thrill it is for me? I grew up in a town of 300, in a church of 30. No youth group, never went to a single youth rally, never went to a youth event growing up, was a kid that was lost in trouble all the time, everywhere I went. And to be able to see what God has done through me, knowing who me is, it's amazing. But I get to see my kids. I get to watch Carrie as he interacts. And I get to watch Ashley. And I get to see their spouses fully devoted to God. And then I get to see my grandkids. And I get to hear their stories of going to school. And I could tell you story after story to where my grandkids, and understand they're not perfect, 
And as a matter of fact, I think Carrie had to have a discussion with one of my grandkids in between the song and the prayer when you had your eyes closed. You almost had an execution, I think. I was praying, and I, heard, I, thought, heard, I thought I heard somebody scream. You did. It was one of my grandsons. I'm not talking about perfection, but I'm talking about boys and girls who already courageously go in and know that they are there to represent God and are already in the second and third grade life-giving forces. They're reviving life. And the coolest thing is that when my life ends and their life ends, the one who enabled me and us to live in this life will breathe new life into me and my wife and my kids and my grandkids. And this screwed up kid who never thought he would accomplish anything or make it anywhere will live to ever, forever with Jesus, the life giver, in a real sense on the cross, in a real sense for eternity. And we'll celebrate it with all the people that we love most. Next Sunday, Reed and I will celebrate 40 years of marriage. 40 years. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I told several people, 40 years, it's just amazing how blessed one woman can be. I'm telling you, right? And I want you to know, it's not always an easy road. In between the great things that Philip is doing is the persecution and the loss of people that he loves. But while everything seems to be dying around him, he has life, and so do those that he loves. You have that chance. I want to beg you to go out and decide that you're not just going to go through the motions. You are life givers because of the life that's been given to you and decide that you are going to be a spiritual being who acts wise and shrewdly and humbly as you make yourself available for whatever task or assignment that God might give you. Let's bow and pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to be here. Father, thank you so much for giving us life. You said that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that you gave us life. And Father, that was not just birth, it was life. And Father, while life on this earth was never designed to be perfect, it's a good life, it's the best life, and it's followed by the only life any human would want. And Father, while we are graced to be your children, and those that you love, help us never think that we were the only ones that you love. Father, there are lost people that are out there that you long to love in a way that allows them to experience your love. Father, for us, some of our best friends, some of the people that we'll be the closest to, we don't even know yet. But if we'll be like Philip, some of our closest relationships will be discovered as we love you the way you loved us. So move us to be people who commit to reviving our world by being what we should in our world, in whatever world that might be, Father. I pray you will convict us and enable us in the name of Jesus. Amen.